What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. New watershed guidelines on antitrust regulation from the Department of Justice and the FTC. This is a document that's put out for comment. It's not official and it's not the law. DOJ antitrust chief Jonathan Cantor explains their motivation. Antitrust enforcement oxygenates the market. It gives opportunities for new firms, technologies to flourish and thrive. And what we want is we want competition. We want disruption. We want innovators. Plus, AT&T's lead-clad cables and authors are taking on AI algorithms. AI is changing things. We don't know exactly how, but it's got a lot of people awfully scared. It is Wednesday, July 19th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today. We're here. We're holding down the fort. Some new news uh, just out earlier this morning. The Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department together releasing new merger guidance. The agencies saying they want to clarify their more aggressive approach to antitrust enforcement of corporate consolidation. Under the new guidelines, the FTC and DOJ will use 13 criteria, they say, to evaluate both so-called horizontal mergers in which companies in the same industry merge and then vertical mergers uh, in which uh, the same supply chains merge. I just did vertical and horizontal. I don't know if I went the right direction. (laughs) Uh, Those criteria include uh, these principles. And I think for a lot of folks in uh, corporate uh, America, this is going to be significant. Mergers should not significantly increase concentration in highly concentrated markets. That's not new, but here's some some that may seem that way. Eliminating substantial competition between firms, increasing the risk of coordination, eliminating a potential entrant in a concentrated market, and substantially lessening competition by creating a firm that controls products or services that its rivals may use to compete. It should be said, this is a document that's put out for comment. It's not official and it's not the law it's really a way of anchoring almost you could even some might describe it a political document administrations the trump administration 2020 put one out this started in 1968 uh there was a new uh, version put out in 1982 what it does uh, and this document has evolved over the years and when i said an anchoring technique in a way it sort of anchors this group to to this view of the world and then if another administration comes along. This is just their impression or this regulator's right, this, impression of what they think the law is and exactly. how they're going to go about trying to enforce it. Right. Look, last week they lost a couple of major battles in court, right. the FTC, FTC did, in their battle to try and say that Microsoft couldn't take over Activision right. Blizzard. Does this document in any way recognize that or is this kind of like, hey, full, full speed I don't ahead, think we're this going... Cha- no, I don't think this changes No, I, I just mean approach. they didn't, it, they right. didn't take any... Um, 
it didn't take any wind out of their sails to lose those cases in court. Is this pretty no, strident? I, it it seems like it, it, it hasn't. Um, I mean, this, this seems specifically targeted around technology and platform companies, which is something that antitrust historically has not found ways to work with, or at least the traditional ways have not been the way uh, this administration has wanted to approach it. I'm not sure how far, you know, I think they look and say, look at the airline deal that, that didn't happen. I mean, I think right. they, they look at a number of deals that did get blocked and say that's success. I, I mean, I and guess then they'll look at some of the others and say that's not success. And I think that's how, they're, they're looking at this probably in a way that perhaps some of the people in the business community may not be. Yeah, I, I would say on the one hand, it may be useful as a tool for companies to kind of figure out what regulators are thinking. On the other hand, it's probably so restrictive that they're not going to appreciate it anyway, the business community, when it comes down to it. Well, the question is whether it helps. To, well, to me, there's two impacts. One is, if you're a company, do you look at this and does it change yeah. your behavior? Do you say, you know what, I'm actually going to challenge this? Yeah. I don't, I don't care what they say. I, I don't think it's right. That could be one approach. Uh, the other thing is, does it change the conversation in the same way that, you know, Elizabeth Warren changed the conversation around taxes and wealth and sure. all of these things. There, we might not have a wealth tax today, but boy, did it change the conversation over time. And in a way, that's what sometimes documents like this do, both on the, the, on the left and the right, yeah. um, depending on how they sort of, as I say, anchor sort of how they educate judges, how it educates lawyers, how it sort of again, changes that conversation. Makes companies it, think about what they're about to do. Would it pass this, this in, legal test? In a different way. Even if you can win in the courts, you know you're going to be challenged by the regulators, right. and does that change That's a deterrent unto itself. Something? And by the way, yesterday, I don't know if you heard, James Gorman at Morgan Stanley said he thinks we have bottomed out in the IPO market, or in the um, M&A market, right. that that is going to be something that improves maybe, uh, maybe the second half of this year, if not definitely by next year. I wonder if this part of the conversation puts another chill right. back on that market and makes companies think, well, maybe not so fast. I don't know. I mean, look, I was talking to a bunch of CEOs recently who were talking about this decision, and it, the, uh, the decision being the, the FTC, the FTC uh, loss related to Microsoft's Activision, does that give you some kind of renewed confidence or mojo to go do a deal? I don't know. I mean, I think, it, I think there's an emotional element to it. But I think there's also a recognition you're likely going to court if right. you're going to be doing a big deal like that. And it's going to take a lot longer than you think. And right. it's going to be it's going to cost a, a lot, lot of more. It's going to cost more and it's going to cost more in terms of focus right. of your executives. That This is right. what they're going to have to deal with. Um, and that in itself might be a deterrent, too. Another big story for you. AT&T says that it does not intend to immediately remove legacy lead wrapped cables from Lake Tahoe, according to a court filing. The company's stock hit a three decade low earlier this week on concerns that were raised by a recent Wall Street Journal report. AT&T and other telecom companies uh, left toxic cables on poles, that's what the report says, underwater and underground and in the air. Uh, AT&T believes that it is in the public interest to leave those cables in place for now and allow further analysis. In Tuesday's court filing, the company said that less than 10 percent of the cable in the national system is lead clad and criticized the Wall Street Journal's investigations. They said, based on our repeated testing of these cables, data and methods that we have made publicly available, we have serious concerns with the journal's testing methods and the reliability of its results and reporting. 
AT&T is working with union partners on a voluntary testing program for any employee who has worked with lead cables, testing at all of the sites mentioned in the journal's reporting and is conducting in-person site visits as well. Now, this is something that's not just AT&T, it's the cable industry or the cable industry at large. Verizon hit a 13-year low earlier this week as well, mm. but AT&T is the one that has the legacy Bell, Ma Bell right. cable thing, so they would be the biggest one in any of these issues. Look, this is a long and complicated uh, article, and I think they were forced to respond at this point right. because of the stock's decline over this time. There were two analysts who downgraded the stock earlier this week, J.P. Morgan and Citi, because they were worried about the potential liability that would come with any of this. It's also a remediation cost, and numbers that have been tossed around include something like $60 billion if you were to remove all of wow. these cables. AT&T says that it thinks that number is much smaller than that because of the small portion of its network that this would involve. They say less than 10% of the cables, they've got something like 2,000 miles of sheath cables that are out there, so that would be less than 200,000, but they say two-thirds of that is buried in a protective layer of conduit mm. underground. So that leaves one-third that is either aerial or in the water. They say that that's a much lower exposure. But, of course, it's not just going to be remediation. It's going to be the potential, if you left these things there, if right. you knew it was leaching out, what would that mean potentially for anybody who was affected by it? Now, they raised some serious questions about the independent study that the journal says that it had. They say, I think, that there was some background right. that... This was paid for by environmental groups. It was The research was done by a firm related to one of those environmental groups. But I think this is going to play out over if a long scale. If it's not $60 billion, though, yeah, what and is it's it? 10% of that, that was, that's their number? Uh, less could, could than 10%. Not, $60 billion is, is what other people have thrown out. They right. said 10% of the miles that they have out there, 2 million right. miles of cable. So... 10% of that, I think, right. is what they're talking about. No, this I was just wondering, are we talking about, six, that are we talking about 60 billion? We're we talking about 6 billion? Are we talking about 12? I don't know. But this I is think their attempt to try and put some numbers around it, right. but obviously the concern on the street is real. And, and anytime there's Morgan a bee next City, to it. Right. Good. Anytime any of these issues, I think they're raising questions about whether it's the right idea to take some of these out. Uh, some of them are still active lines where you are getting things like 911 calls on it. It's right. a complex story. But if you look at what's happened with other companies, if you think of 3M with the troubles it's run into with things, uh, if you think of Johnson & Johnson with talc, right. I think that's why people have real concerns wow. about this and trying to get their arms around it. Um, Citigroup earlier this week uh, cut their rating on it um, to neutral from a buy. They cut their price target to 16 from 22. But if you look at the stock action, it's gone well below $16. I was going to say, where are we sitting and, here uh, now? $14 right $14 now. $14 right yeah. now. Anyway, this is going to be a story that continues to play out, and we'll watch it. Um, trying to get wow. access to any of the people involved on either side of this. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, the FTC and the DOJ are teaming up to crack down on big tech. Multiple lawsuits lost, but that won't keep them down. The top antitrust regulators are out with new guidelines. Andrew Ross Sorkin and Becky Quick question the Department of Justice's antitrust chief, Jonathan Cantor. Remember Vlad the Impaler used to take all of his enemies' heads and put them on stakes just to scare off anybody else from ever coming? Is that what this is designed to do? I guess I look at it a little bit more hospitably, perhaps. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. 
We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Now, a deeper dive into one of Wall Street's biggest stories today, a new roadmap for antitrust regulation. The Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice released a draft of their long-awaited guidelines on mergers. Antitrust regulators at both agencies are not backing down in their efforts to encourage competition, despite having lost multiple lawsuits in this pursuit. Most recently, regulators' efforts to block the Microsoft Activision deal, that was blocked by a federal judge. Still, they soldier on. Today's new guidelines are a broad update on those for vertical mergers in 2020 and earlier the guidelines for horizontal mergers in 2010. Why this matters? Well, since the 1960s, regulators have been setting their own guidelines. But they're just that, guidelines. They aren't law, and they aren't enforceable by law. In these directions, the FTC and DOJ are offering a roadmap for judges to interpret the law. The court's component is key here, since regulators have been on the losing side in multiple legal arguments, and FTC Chair Lena Khan has faced heat from Washington lawmakers. Here's Andrew recapping the details. The guidelines outline 13 principles like mergers should not significantly increase concentration in highly concentrated markets and mergers should not eliminate substantial competition between firms. It's a watershed document that a lot of folks in corporate America are reading uh, this morning, along with their lawyers, Assistant Attorney General for the Antitrust Division at the Justice Department. Jonathan Cantor uh, is with us this morning. Unfortunately, FTC uh, Commissioner Chair uh, Lena Khan, who was going to be joining us, uh, affected by some weather travel issues, uh, like so many uh, across the country. Uh, but good morning to you. Let, let's talk about it. What, what's the intent with putting this, this document out? Yeah, thanks. First of all, it's wonderful to be here. Um, thanks for having me. The intent of this document is to make sure that we are providing transparency to the public about how we enforce the law. I want to be very clear, the law hasn't changed. These guidelines simply explain agency practice and how we apply uh, over a century of court precedent and statutory text. And so how much should folks think about this as just a blueprint for how you plan to approach it, but not necessarily how the courts plan to approach it? So that's the beauty of how we've constructed these guidelines. We've started with a full analysis of the law. And so going back to the merger guidelines, which originated in 1968, these are the first guidelines ever to cite cases, and we do so extensively because we want to make sure that we are bringing cases to courts that reflect the facts but also reflect the law, which is what courts apply when they're looking at um, our, our, our cases. Uniquely, at least historically, most judges looked at a market, said how concentrated is the market going to be, and importantly, how is this going to impact consumers? Those were always sort of the two basic questions. It looks like in these guidelines, 
you have expanded the aperture in terms of how you look at these things, including, and I think it's going to be somewhat controversial, there's a bit of crystal ball gazing that may be required to actually think through how, for example, a smaller company, which may have actually you know, very little power or influence right now, might affect a bigger company merged later down the road. How do you think about that? Yeah, so merger enforcement, as Congress created in the Clayton Act, is necessarily predictive. And so it's ultimately a risk assessment. We're trying to understand the extent to which the merger will risk threatening competition. And so what courts have said over over a century is that if it reduces substantial competition between competitors, or if it tends to create a monopoly by entrenching monopoly power, or building a moat around a firm that already has monopoly power, or increases a trend toward concentration so that the only way to compete is to be massive, then those are exactly the kinds of mergers that can violate the Clayton Act and be subject to legal scrutiny. How much of this should be considered a political document um, and an anchoring technique? I say this because, as as you mentioned, uh, these documents started being produced back in 1968. Different administrations, uh, Reagan in 82, uh, as recently as as as, as Trump's, uh, DOJ right before before he left have have left these documents in place and they have evolved so little pieces of them in different administrations with perhaps different perspectives have have sort of pushed through into guidance that's continued yeah so as you noted these guidelines have started in 1968 but they were updated in 82 84 92 97 2010 and 2020 and there's a reason for that the reason is because markets evolve And the law evolves. And it's important that agency practice evolve to meet the facts in the law where they are. Um, We've gone through painstaking detail to make sure this is not an ideological document. We've gone through painstaking detail to make sure this is a legally rigorous document. And as you read it, you'll see citations to cases extensively. We literally read every single merger enforcement decision by an appellate court and the Supreme Court, and we laid that out and then built the guidelines around those legal decisions. Because the burden is ultimately on us when we investigate a merger to convince a court that there's a problem. Courts are looking at court precedents Uh, And we are looking in them as well. And we are giving courts a framework that courts uh, have used for over a century to analyze mergers. You know, you you can look at laws. One person sees one thing, another sees another. Were you surprised by the, the recent rulings in two different courts going against the FTC last week, saying that they they didn't have the right to shut down the Microsoft Uh, merger with Activision or the Microsoft purchase of Activision? Yeah, I can't comment on any specific case, but we we have great faith in our court system, and it's there for a reason. We have the burden to bring cases before courts and convince courts that a merger may substantially lessen competition or tend to create a monopoly. And that's exactly why we've constructed these guidelines to to build around the same precedents that courts are applying. To us, that is the best way to be faithful to the law. Um, let me ask you about this, and maybe it's an ideological question, but it, it's about how you and the FTC approach cases and your willingness, in fact, to perhaps lose the case to maybe gain ground elsewhere. There, Skadden Arps, uh, the law firm, put out a, a paper saying, are the FTC and DOJ losing antitrust battles but gaining ground? And it was a very interesting um, paper because it basically suggested that even in cases where you're losing, there are component parts of these rulings which are going to help you down the line, which is to say, for example, uh, several courts have now ruled that wage fixing and no poach agreements can be prosecuted criminally. 
That's, that's something that didn't exist before. Even though you lost the case, you got that. A district court recently held that it may suffice for the government to show in an actual potential competition merger case that the acquirer had the wherewithal to enter the market, not necessarily that it intended to do so. So how much do you think about those issues relative to the case itself? Yeah. So I'm not familiar with that paper, but let me be very clear. We bring our cases to win. And so when we believe we, that the facts and the law support legal action, we bring it to a court, uh, and then we give a court or a jury the opportunity to confront the facts and the law and render a decision. And so um, that's what drives our decision-making. At the Department of Justice, we are a law enforcement agency, and our goal is to enforce the law consistent with the facts and the law. And, and, and separately, though, how much are these guidelines intended um, not just to frame how you think about it, but to be a deterrent of sorts so that you don't go to court? Well, the best case scenario is compliance. And so we have long um, encouraged industry to comply with the law. And by being transparent and giving industry the clarity they've been asking for um, in terms of how we apply uh, merger law um, and how we go about our investigations, um, we are hopeful that it will induce greater compliance uh, and, and mitigate or at least minimize the need for us to have to go to court to challenge transactions. And so that's the best outcome for everybody in our view. Um, we should mention, by the way, we are just talking, Becky was asking about Microsoft Activision. They've now extended the deadline for that transaction to close to October 18th. Uh, but, but back to the, 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 the guidelines at hand, one of the other major shifts, I think, is how you think about what you describe as platform companies, uh, which really is part of the sort of technological revolution that we've seen over the last, call it, decade or two. How do you think about them differently than perhaps uh, courts either have historically, and, and maybe you think they haven't actually changed, or, but at least those prosecuting those deals. Yeah, so it's, I think it's undeniable that our markets have evolved and uh, platforms have become a market reality that exists not just in consumer and enterprise tech, but in healthcare and energy and, and finance, uh, among many other industries. And so if we're going to be applying the law to the facts on the ground, we have to have a deep understanding of how those markets function. Platform markets have their own characteristics. There could be competition for the platform, there can be competition on the platform, uh, and there can be competition to disrupt the platform. And those are market realities that sometimes don't neatly fit into um, traditional categorizations such as vertical or horizontal. And so by acknowledging that in the guidelines, using state-of-the-art e e economics and analysis, uh, and then applying well-settled legal principles, we have an opportunity to make sure that the facts and the law meet in the middle. Technology continues to evolve, too. And a few months ago, you told a crowd at South by Southwest that you were watching artificial intelligence very closely. You've got a project, I think you codenamed it, Project Gretzky, after Wayne Gretzky, who always says you have to skate to where the puck is going. So what have you learned in these last several months in terms of AI? What, what do you see uh, that concerns you? First, we've learned that it is moving quickly, and it's essential that we understand how these technologies work in order to make sure that we are applying the law effectively. And so first and foremost, we are beefing up our internal expertise to make sure that we have uh, the chops to understand these technologies and to apply the law effectively. Second, we're understanding that in a world of large language models and other data-driven technologies, uh, that uh, concentration in markets that exist today can determine the amount of data that's available to firms going forward. And so it's really important that we both understand the technology, but understand how concentration can affect future generations of AI. 
Jonathan, you know, we all want fair competition and, and we all want to prevent monopolies and, and we want a competitive, a dynamic country. That's something that I know you and the administration and, and frankly, I think is apolitical, both parties want. The question I'd ask is whether we think there really is too much concentration. I went back and looked and these are the largest companies in 1967 in America. And I will tell you that none of them are on the list today. IBM, AT&T, Eastman Kodak, General Motors, Standard Oil, Texaco, Sears Roebuck, doesn't exist, uh, General Electric, Polaroid, and Gulf. Today we'd be talking about Alpha, uh, Apple, Alphabet, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Berkshire Hathaway, Johnson Johnson, ExxonMobil, uh, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, and the like. Does that, just reading those lists, does that say to you that we actually have a very competitive and dynamic market in the world? That's 50 years later, obviously, um, or, or not. When I hear that, it says to me that antitrust enforcement works because almost all of the companies that you put on that list were at one point or another subject to antitrust enforcement. Antitrust enforcement oxygenates the market. It gives opportunities for new firms, technologies, uh, to flourish and thrive. And what we want is we want competition. We want disruption. We want innovators. We want them doing it throughout the economy and throughout the country and throughout the world. And that's what we're trying to promote. We're not trying to prescribe outcomes. We're not trying to pick winners and losers. We want the marketplace to do that. Um, let me ask you, it, it's specific to the media industry, but we have so many executives coming on the broadcast recently. Um, that talk about the need for consolidation in that particular space. It's one that's near and dear, of course, to our hearts because uh, here we are, a member of it. And there's a question mark about, you know, what happens to a Paramount uh, in the world and what happens to a, a Warner Brothers discovery and a Comcast, which owns, owns this network, at, a, at the same time that big tech companies, for example, Amazon, Apple, and the like, have gotten into this this business and into this space. And I'm so curious if you could just explain how you think about that, because th there's a lot of folks that are sitting actually waiting. Frankly, they're trying to wait you out, I think, which they think is, you know, we won't do a deal now because we're not sure what would happen. Maybe we need to get a different administration uh, that, that, that would come in. I don't know if a different administration would, would think about this differently, but how do you think about it? Yeah. So, um this is an area of the economy that we're you know, monitoring very closely. There's a long history of antitrust enforcement across many administrations uh, in decades in the media industry. And it's important that as I talk about understanding these uh, market realities, that we understand the shifts uh, in how media is, is consumed, how it's distributed, how it's paid for, and how it's used even to train AI algorithms. And so these are all market realities that affect the competitive dynamics. And so uh, I won't comment on anything specific other than to say that, you know, we are, we are up to date on the latest developments and we are monitoring this space very carefully uh, and we will be, um, you know, vigilant in enforcing the antitrust laws effectively and appropriately. Hey, Jonathan, when I, when I read this this morning and started thinking about it, you know, here's what it kind of sounded like to me. Remember Vlad the Impaler used to take all of his enemies' heads and put them on stakes? just to scare off anybody else from ever coming? Is that what this is designed to do, a scare document to say, hey, this is what we're looking at, it's gonna to be tough. If you think you're getting past us, forget it, because we've really researched it, looked into the law. Am I wrong to think about it that way? I guess I look at it a little bit um, um, more hospitably, perhaps, which is to say that our job is to enforce the law, and we just simply wanna explain what the law 
says and make sure that we are bringing cases that reflect the state of the law. Um, there are lots of different doctrines uh, out in antitrust law because the statutes have existed for over a century. Uh, things like in, entrenching monopoly power, uh, trends toward concentration, serial acquisitions. All of these are really important realities in the economy and consistent with the law. That's all we're trying to do. We're just trying to explain how it works. Jonathan, I, I imagine over the next 60 days, you're going to get a lot of comments, especially from the business community. I know that you've uh, talked a lot to those in the business community and elsewhere uh, over the last couple of years as you've developed these uh, particular guidelines. How do you imagine they could change? And do, do you imagine they will change as a function of the comments that come in? Yeah, we're open-minded. So uh, we've created a 60-day comment period, which is actually longer than the historic comment period for merger guidelines because this is such an important document. The public feedback has been really valuable to us thus far, and we are really looking forward to it. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that a major source of feedback in this document uh, came from in internally, from our own professional staff. We spent months um, workshopping these guidelines with the people the hardworking people at the Justice Department who are on the ground um, bringing investigations uh, on a daily basis. I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention the Attorney General, who's an antitrust scholar in his own right, and he hasn't just been supportive of these documents. He's been a thought partner in developing this, these guidelines. Jonathan Cantor, the Antitrust Assistant AG, we very much appreciate you joining us this morning uh, as this news was rolled out uh, and answering all our questions. And I'm sure we'll have a lot more and hope to talk to you again very soon. Okay. Delighted to be here. Thank you so much. Next on Squawk Pod, thousands of authors, maybe your favorite among them, are calling on tech companies to stop using their work. And the question is, is that a copyright issue? Is that some other kind of legal issue that we've never really even contemplated before? The new world of AI. That's next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Up on Becky. Q. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today. More than 8,000 authors signing a letter calling on companies to not use their work to train AI systems. This without their permission or compensation. The Authors Guild letter signed by writers including James Patterson, Suzanne Collins and Margaret Atwood saying that uh, systems that mimic and regurgitate our language, stories, style, and ideas without consent, credit, or compensation are a problem. It's an interesting one because we've talked about, you know, if somebody goes off and writes a book or writes an article in their mind, they may have read 50 or 100 books. Right. Now, they probably paid for those books, or maybe they went to the library, and the library paid for those books once in each case. But if the AI can effectively read the books, even if they paid for the books once, and then, and then you could, and then you could make millions and millions and millions yeah. of books as a result, it changes the whole dynamic. And the question is, is that a copyright issue? Is that some other kind of legal issue that we've never really even contemplated before? How is that supposed to work? Well, for newspapers, too, if you allow 
these bots to come in and scrape all your information and then take all of right. that and give it to everybody else for free, how do you ever make money on subscriptions? And if this is the same thing that the actors are worried about, right. that the writers are worried about. AI is changing things. We don't know exactly how, right. but it's got a lot of people awfully scared. Even more complicated is the idea of fair use. So one of the things that I worry about is I, I think long term, the only news that's going to have great value is immediate news, meaning news within five or 10 or 20 minutes. Because invariably, if you break some news, the Associated Press, Reuters, others, um, wires and other services will then rewrite the news. Right. And that's allowed in the sort of fair use doctrine of how this all works. And you can even quote a quote from the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or what have you. The Associated Press, for example, is now allowing uh, OpenAI to scrape its archive. They have a deal to do that. But if you think about everything that's in their archive, what's in their archive is not just their own work. Mm -hmm. What's in their archive is all of the fair use that, that was that allowed that they pulled from CNBC and they pulled from all sorts of other places. And it creates this sort of very interesting sort of almost existential question it, you know about what? the this, value of all this. this. This has been a problem for a long time, though. If there is a mistake that's reported, well, that's like it used to be too. a correction would fix it. Once there's a mistake that's reported and something wrong, it gets copied and right. replicated everywhere. And it's impossible to put that back, even if it's factually incorrect. You can't stop that from right. replicating. And I know people who have gotten misquoted, who say that there's been an error right. in things. It gets picked up. And, and that'll be interesting to see whether, how, in fact, that's adjustable or not yeah. in, uh, in AI, yeah. in a new AI world that we're all just living in. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe will be back tomorrow. Tune in weekday mornings every day on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 